Welcome to episode four of the Legends Podcast. I am your host, Sam Manheimer, and I am joined by fellow co-host Ari Levy. Hey guys, how's it going? Uh, for those that listened uh, to the last episode with Garrett Greller, we discussed um, No Dairy December. I'm on day six and it's uh, it's tough for sure. I don't know how you do it every day. Something you just sort of get used to. Um, something that I learned recently about the dairy industry is actually that they were lining the pockets of the Nixon campaign in 1972. So for those of you who are on the fence about how you feel about big dairy, um, I think that should solidify your position in my corner of the no dairy community. So our, I think it's, it's good to have you on this side. We have, we have big pharma uh Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and and the dairy the dairy lobby. Yeah. No, they're all they're all crooks. The uh big rice milk, big oat milk communities are uh completely clean in this matter. They've never been in any sort of political hot water. Um but yeah, big dairy, whole different story. Yeah, it's definitely I feel like I feel a little better, a little more light on my feet, like Newlander said I would. I can't say for certain because I'm only six days in, um, but it's definitely been an interesting experience thus far. Um, definitely trying to keep in mind what I can eat. I bought a big bag of trail mix from Costco um, that had uh, M&Ms in it. So I've been eating around the M&Ms and there's like a bunch of M&Ms forming at the bottom. So when it's all up, I'll have a bag of M&Ms. <laughs> at the light at the end of the tunnel for you to look forward yeah. to what what have um, you been eating aside from just the non m&m part of the trail mix I'll, uh just mostly kind of just eggs chicken fish lettuce greens um actually this morning i went to dunkin donuts and i got a beyond sausage sandwich with egg and no cheese and then a black coffee that's the recipe that i think we'll, the you kind of get used to it it's a lot easier to just know what you can and can't have. It becomes less of a conscious decision about what you're going to get on the menu. You kind of just look at the menu and know what your options are going to be and then just pick from those. So if I walk into some place and there's pizzas and cheeseburgers and grilled cheese, I don't know what kind of restaurant I'm describing right now, but those are just things that I instantly cross off the list. And then you just whittle it down to things that are available and then go from there. And you can yeah. adjust your orders too. So. Also, also another thing I've learned is like if you really want to not have dairy and things, I just tell I've just been telling people when I order I have a dairy allergy. So yeah. I'm in your corner now, and I know what it's like. And sometimes you get looks like there's something wrong with you, but it's it's just so condescending. Yeah, we're human beings too, and sometimes it doesn't feel like we're being treated like them. But you know. I think I think we're developing a coalition, though. We'll get into coalition governments in a little bit, but I think the the dairy special interest is um, yeah. on the on the decline, and the non-dairy coalition is is on the rise. Absolutely. So you know, I'm day six in. I got 25 more days to go. Um, we will keep the viewers updated about how No Dairy December is going. Um, we have an awesome show for you today. Our good friend Sam Parker joins us from Tel Aviv. Um, we have a lot to talk about. Um, and it's an extra long interview, so we're going to keep this short, but we obviously have to touch on IU football. Um, one thing I need to get out there, 
was last week. I, I thought Michael Penix had come back in the game. We need reality towards ACL. And to clear things up, um, I was watching and I did see him get injured. Um, my roommate has a membership to Costco. And he, when Indiana was up, they had a pretty good lead. It was getting towards the end of the game after Penix got hurt. And he wanted to go. And I don't have the membership to Costco. So I am at his mercy of when he wants to go. And you can't say no to a trip to Costco most of the time. So I did go, and I, I, for some reason, thought he went back in the game when he didn't tear his AC, when he when he had torn his ACL, and he is done for the season. But it's Tuttle time, and Tuttle showed up in Madison and took the souls out of the Badger fans that saw it firsthand. I like Tuttle. I'm wearing only Tuttle necks from here on out. I am a huge Jack Tuttle fan too. I thought, given the position he was in, first time starting against a ranked team on the road. He played phenomenally well. He made good decisions, a couple touchdown passes, handled the ball very nicely. He had that one fumble, but you know what? I'll, I'll give that to him. Wisconsin's a good team. They are 500 right now, and I would just hate to be a Badger fan, so I'm glad that I'm not, but IU. I mean, they're they're a legitimate team. We nearly beat Ohio State 6-1, and one. Um, hoping to go to 7-1 and one next week against Purdue, which the old the old oaken bucket is coming home. Yeah, if we if we don't beat Purdue, that'll just be a massive disappointment. But the the scenario is right now, if Michigan and Ohio State, excuse me, don't play next week, as the rules are currently written, IU would be the next in line to go to the Big Ten championship game from the Big Ten East. So this is a call to Coach Jim Harbaugh, formerly from the podcast. You know what's good for you right now. You're gonna get lit up by Ohio State if you play next week. You're going to go to, I think, two and five on the season. Massively you might lose your job. Oh, I think he's for sure going to lose his job. But if, if I'm Jim Harbaugh and I just missed my last game this this past Saturday, what's the upside to playing? You know, I think I think if I'm if I'm him, I'm taking my mask off. You know, protocols are going out the window. A couple co- positive COVID tests and a game cancellation. Not the worst thing in the world for you. So there is rumblings of them the committee rewriting rules to qualify Ohio state, which would just suck because they put these rules in place for a reason. And if Ohio state doesn't qualify because they don't play this game and they somehow are able to go to the big 10 championship game, that would be a real bummer. Um, they did beat Indiana. So if they do play this game and win, they, you know, they hundred percent deserve to go to that. But I mean, am I selfish for saying I would like to see Indiana in a big 10 championship game versus Northwestern and then, Beat Northwestern and punch a ticket to the Rose Bowl? Yeah. The other thing I want to say right now is Nebraska, there's just no good that you've done to this conference aside from protests in order to get the Big Ten football to start. But when you joined the Big Ten, they realigned the conferences so that they had the Big Ten West and the Big Ten East. And the idea was that Nebraska was going to be a good football team to pair with Wisconsin. So those two teams would kind of be at the top of the, the ticket each year. Nebraska sucks. The only yeah. decent team in the Big Ten East, or sorry, West, is Wisconsin, who we just beat. Iowa's 5-2. and two. They're a good team. Northwestern's good this year. Northwestern's fine. But I use better than all of those teams. And yeah. the fact that we have to just get put against this national powerhouse, this tier one college football team every year is kind of ridiculous. At least it's ridiculous when all of the teams in the West aren't as strong. So I'm frustrated, obviously not biased at all in my in my assessments of this stuff, but I would just love to see IU in that championship game. I think we deserve it. Um, maybe the, 
<laughs> they rewrite the rules. They can rewrite Indiana as the other team because, I mean, Ohio State's going to run over any team that comes out of the West. Yeah. A couple last things before we get to our interview with Sam. Um, you know, Indiana, who would have thought that at the beginning of the year someone told you that we beat Wisconsin, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State all in the same year? You would have told us that you would have thought, and they've done it. And a lot of the reason they've done it is because of Tom Allen. And in college sports, whether it be basketball or football, the most important thing you have is, is a good coach. Because a good coach will weather the storm when your team is not great and you're going to bring in talent when you're really good. And Tom Allen is redefining Indiana football. And I think they found their coach. And, you know, we see the videos after the game with him celebrating with the team. We see how hard he pushes his guys and how well he's able to coach. And I think if I'm a 17 or 18 year old kid and he comes and sits down in my living room and talks about coming to play football at Indiana, I definitely think that, you know, the, the, the tides have changed a little bit and Indiana football is legit going forward. So no matter what happens with this season, um, I'm very confident with this team. And him. Yeah. I think yesterday after the game was one of the happiest moments watching this team this whole season Tom Allen was getting interviewed on the field and all his players were running behind him into the locker room. And basically every one of them stopped and just grabbed him by the shoulders and were yelling into the camera. This guy's the best coach in America. And you can really tell that they believe that. And I, I, I do genuinely think that he should be the coach of the year this year. I mean, he's dealt with adversity with his starting quarterback going down. He's had an incredibly difficult schedule um, to deal with. Also, the thing that gets lost in a lot of IU success has been the fact that the last four games, I think it is, or at least four games that they've played this year have come for the team that they're playing off of a bye week. So a lot of teams in the Big Ten have had to get games canceled due to COVID, unfortunately. Um, and all these teams have their games canceled the week before Indiana. So effectively, they have two weeks to prepare for a good IU football team. And the only team we've lost to is Ohio State, who was another one of those teams that had two weeks to prepare. Um and the job that Tom Allen's been able to do to prepare his team to face teams that are coming off of buys is incredible. Like it's, it's hard to win against teams coming off of buys in football because you're getting guys back from injury. You have additional time to game plan. Your guys are rested up. So TA shout out to you. you you're killing it. And I hope IU gives him a lifetime contract because he deserves it. Me too. Um, the old local buckets coming home next week against Purdue. And we'll, we'll definitely be, be watching that game and we'll be able to talk about it on our next show um, but without further ado we'd like to welcome on a good friend sam parker mm. that would be a good intro mm. <laughs> mm. all right you can let it fly we now welcome on a very, very special guest, a very special friend of the program, uh, one of my best friends in college, as well as Sam's, uh, intelligence expert, soon-to-be Israeli citizen, Sam Parker. Sam Parker, welcome to the Legends Podcast. Thank you for having me on, guys. I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I'm super excited to uh, sh like talk with you guys and uh, catch up with you guys and understand uh, 
what you guys are doing and talk a little bit about what I'm doing. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, welcome. And this is going to be bad radio, but the beard is coming in very strong. I would say this may be the best I've ever seen you look, Sparker. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I've been working on the beard. I've been working on the flow. Uh, I've been trying to get the look down and uh, I think uh, there's some progress being made. It's still a work in progress, but we're getting there. You've been uh, you've been posting a lot of selfies on Instagram uh, post-workout with your shirt off, something that you, you didn't usually do before. Is that Israeli humidity and that like that hummus just like, you know, passing through you and you just getting shredded? Uh, it is. It is quite humid out here. Uh, when I moved out here, I, I was expecting to move to a desert, but the Tel Aviv area is really a swampland. So uh, it's definitely humid. There's a fair amount of hummus being eaten. But uh, yeah, I just uh, it's kind of like going back to college. You have a little more free time, a little more time to work out. So uh, I've been trying to get both the body and the mind right. And uh, I feel as though I am on the way, on the way, but it's, it's always a work in progress. I've been to Israel once in my life, but the entire time I was there, I was super self-conscious because I was A, the most pale person, but also every person there is at least six feet tall and super bronze and jacked. So I'm glad to see that you're assimilating into that society. Yeah, yeah, I can't uh, I can't get that the height down, although there are a fair amount of short, uh, short uh, Jewish guys out here, but uh, Definitely, definitely the being fit. It's it's definitely I feel like a part of the uh, Tel Aviv lifestyle. I've never uh, lived in a city like Tel Aviv before, where everyone is just so physically fit and eats so healthy. Uh, uh, Sam and I obviously studied abroad together in Copenhagen, and I've obviously traveled the world uh, to Southeast Asia with Ari, and and we've been to I've been to a lot of places and I don't think there's another city like Tel Aviv in terms of like the health of the uh, individuals and the fitness level of the people it's a pretty special place and the weather is just like perfect year-round yeah yeah the weather is the weather is incredible right now like today was like the coldest day and the high was like 65 but it's getting back up to like 75 78 tomorrow and sunny I wish I could relate to that <laughs> yeah do you so you don't miss the frozen tundra of northern minneapolis <laughs> I, I i do not miss the frozen 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 tundra of minnesota i uh i'm actually a little nervous i'm supposed to head back to the states in february here and i'm a little nervous to come back to the cold i'm i i don't know how i'm going to be able to deal with it to be honest with you but uh, i definitely do have my down coat here so i'll be bringing that on the plane <laughs> that's good to hear so for the listeners, can you give a little bit of background on what brought you out to the Holy Land and what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, before I came out here, I was working as a financial analyst at 3M and I worked there for a little over two years and I realized that it's a very good job, a steady job, but maybe it wasn't something that... Um, was pushing me as much as I wanted to intellectually and something that I like truly loved and enjoyed to do. So I uh, discovered this program online. It was, it was the uh, master's program in counterterrorism and homeland security at IDC Herzliya, uh, a pretty well-regarded program out here. And I told myself that I'll apply to it. And, and if I get in, I'll go. And if I, uh, if I don't get in, I will uh, stick around at 3M because I didn't necessarily have anything wrong with the uh, the company or the job 
or the people I worked with, but it just wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. And I kept thinking about where I'm going to see myself in five years and in the career trajectory that I had there, although I wasn't not doing well, I think I was doing fairly well, actually, I wanted to make a change. So um, I ended up getting into the program and I uh, decided to come out here. So uh, over the past year, I was actually living in Herzliya and, and studying in the program. And uh, we finished classes a couple months ago. I've been working on uh, some of my final semester papers and I finished all those. And now I'm just working on my final uh, thesis or final project. And I'll be finishing that this week. So uh, I'm excited. I'm looking uh, towards the future now and uh, for job opportunities out in Israel. Would you make Aliyah in order to stay out there or can you continue to live in Israel as an American citizen? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, I realized that after the end of classes and uh, where I wanted to be in the future, that the best way for me to move forward was to make Aliyah. Uh, to obtain dual citizenship is the best way to put it, I think because there's nothing really that would, uh, in the Aliyah process, keep me in Israel for, let's say, like the rest of my life or anything like that. It's just to uh, obtain the citizenship so you um, are able to live more easily rather than on a work visa in Israel, assimilate better into the culture, and, um, and it would do nothing to inhibit myself if I ever want to come back to the States. So I saw only benefits in the process. So yeah, I'm in the process of making Aliyah right now. And uh, hopefully that'll be done either later this month or in January. Now, I know around the world, uh, it could be very difficult to obtain citizenship to a country that you're not from unless you like marry someone that's from there and then spend a couple of years there. But in Israel, you pretty much just have to be Jewish and they allow you to become a citizen. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So you still have to go through a, a process that is very clearly easier than most of the countries in the world if you are a Jewish individual, but you still have to go through a bureaucratic process to complete it. Uh, but yeah, Israel has a, a law called the right of return. So uh, any Jewish individual, um, they actually only need to have one grandparent be Jewish, uh, has the right to obtain uh, Israeli uh, citizenship. Would you say that you're a poster child for Sheldon Adelson? <laughs> uh, we are we are trudging into uh, some uh, controversial waters here, but uh, I, I think I know a few others that are in Israel right now that would be mo more poster children for uh, Sheldon Adelson. I do not have plans to serve in the IDF, but I know some people that did the birthright Massah IDF trajectory. Uh, that's what I think of more as a poster child for uh, Sheldon Adelson and, and what he stands for. But um, I do think that Sheldon would also appreciate what I'm doing. Yeah. Where? All right. So I know I know you've been to Jerusalem and we could talk about that, but um, kind of off the beaten path, where are some other really good places that you've spent in Israel and uh, would recommend people to go visit if they ever go? Yeah, it's a really good question. So um, it's just crazy that Israel is like the size of the state of in New Jersey and the, the, the physical beauty of the country is uh, very underrated. Uh, there are many places, if you're a hiker or a camper or you like to do either, there are many places in the country that are amazing for that. Uh, if you go to the north, you have the Galilee region around the Sea of Galilee or the Kinneret in Hebrew. Um, and there's some amazing campsites, amazing hiking sites, amazing uh, Druze food, 
amazing, obviously, Jewish food, Arab food, everything. You have the Golan Heights up there as well, amazing hiking, very beautiful part of the country. And then in the south, you have Mitzpe Ramon uh, and uh, Machtesh Ramon, the Ramon Crater, which I actually went down there uh, earlier this summer uh, with some friends from my program, and we watched the Perseid meteor shower from there, which was a very special thing to do, just sleeping under the stars. So it was a very fun time and another great place to go hiking as well. Um, and then actually around Jerusalem, there's a lot of good hiking places. Actually, this past weekend, I went uh, I went to uh, this park called Britannia Park, and it's like rolling hills. It kind of looked like the Shire from Lord of the Rings. Amazing place to go hiking. We went to a winery after as well. Uh, there are just there are many hidden gems in Israel. Uh, and obviously, if anyone listening or either either of you two come out here, we'll we'll definitely explore it for sure, for sure. Well, I was I was planning on coming out in May, and we had talked about it, and I was getting really excited. Um, and then, you know, COVID hit, and it kind of derailed our plans. But now that you're staying out there later, like you know, 100%, I'm gonna come out. Yeah, yeah, I expect uh, I expect a fair amount of guests to come out and visit, and I and I hope for that as well. I really do. Uh, and yeah, we'll we'll see uh, we'll see. I'm I'm at least here until uh, next October, probably at least for another year after that too. But uh, we'll see what ends up happening. So. If uh, whoever's listening, if you want to plan a trip out here, just let me know, and uh, you can for sure uh, can for sure crash my place when you're in Tel Aviv. Well, we have a lot of listeners now, so uh, careful what you wish for there, Sparker. <laughs> Everyone is welcome. <laughs> you're a very welcoming guy. Yeah, I also had plans to come out, and unfortunately, the pandemic ruined things. But I guess with regard to that, Israel's a pretty stringent nation when it comes to protocols. So I guess, what was it like living in Israel during the height of the lockdown? Were you ever nervous about walking outside and getting taken into a van somewhere or was it pretty relaxed? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it Israel is a very strict, stringent country, but the funny thing about it is the people kind of don't really listen as much to the rules as maybe they would in some other countries. Um, but they do listen to the rules if the rules are very clearly uh, placed in front of them. So um, it's like it's here and there. Like some people don't really listen. Other people do. But if you don't listen, you have a possibility of getting a ticket, obviously. And then you have some uh, contract tracing programs that may be using apps or uh, your phone location to decipher where you are. Uh, and you have that as well. But no, during the during the lockdown, I, I think that the lockdown in general, from what I've heard about this, States. I haven't been back since before Corona, but uh, I heard that the lockdown in Israel was more stringent than anywhere in the States, really, including even New York and California um, for certain periods of time. But there has been a significant amount of domestic criticism of the government here on the way that they reopened after the first wave uh, and how it led to a second wave. And now they're, they're starting to talk about rumblings of a third wave, but hopefully we get the vaccine here pretty soon. I think they're expecting around, I think, 4 million doses by the end of the month, which could vaccinate around 20% of the country. So uh, that would be very good. Uh, I would say that I was not really nervous about doing anything. For the first lockdown, I actually lived on campus. Uh, and so I just like stuck on campus really most of the time. But um, now living in Tel Aviv, uh, the restaurants are still closed. The bars, clubs are still closed. They're just starting to reopen some malls. Uh, street shops just reopened uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, but you can still walk on the beach, and I live a two-minute walk from the beach, so I'm working out in uh, one of the parks on the beach almost every day. It's 
it's not too bad, but I, I'm excited for uh, everything to get back to normal, as, as I'm sure everyone is. So I remember in March, you came back to the States for a conference. And uh, that's kind of when COVID was like, you know, more cases were starting to pop up. And you went back to Israel and you, were, you, you came back just in time for Purim. And for those that don't know what Purim is, it's like one of the biggest holidays in Israel in terms of partying and, and going out. And uh, it's kind of it's long story short, it's kind of like Halloween. Everyone dresses up and goes out. And uh, when you got back, you got a call from the Ministry of Health and they said you had to quarantine because you had been in the United States and uh, you missed that. And then when you got out of quarantine, they imposed a nationwide lockdown. So you've been cooped up longer than everyone else. <laughs> yeah, that is uh, it's a fairly true story there. Yeah. So um, I had come back from D.C. and uh, originally they I don't really know why, but they were saying that like the U.S. wasn't going to be treated like other countries. And so I did not have to go into quarantine um, when I came back. It was at the way beginning of the pandemic, too. It was like on March uh, 7th or something. So it really was at the beginning stages of it. I wouldn't say obviously not the way, way beginning, but beginning stages. Um, and I actually did end up, I was told that I did not have to quarantine at first. I went out, uh, had one fun night uh, for Purim, uh, which they've kind of turned into a multi-night holiday out here. And uh, then the next day uh, I was notified that I had to go into quarantine. So I have been cooped up for quite a while, but um, it's it's been all right. I actually met uh, the one of my roommates. I met him. Uh, he also lived on campus as well. I met him during the lockdown. So there are some good things that have come out of it. Uh, but yeah, it's been the social life has been there's some some fun parts for sure, but it's uh, a lot different than than normal. But that's it's for everyone across the world. So we're just trying to make the best of it. So the government stopped you from partying. Is that the takeaway? From uh, <laughs> The government did stop me. I would say, though, that I was a good Samaritan. Um, I was pretty proactive on it because I didn't want to have to run into any issues here on a student visa. So uh, once they made that uh, ruling that anyone who was, I was actually at the APAC policy conference, that anyone was there uh, who was there has to go into quarantine, I, uh, I abided by the regulations. You're a good guy. Is there an <laughs> anti-masking community? Guy. Sorry. Is there an anti-masking um, so not really, I would say, uh, like there is a significant Haredi or ultra Orthodox population in Israel. There is not a significant one in Tel Aviv, but in Jerusalem, I, I believe that there's going to be a significant portion of the ultra Orthodox community that will not get vaccinated. But when it comes to masks, um, depending on... I haven't really been uh, to those neighborhoods, but depending on who you read or what journalists you see, there has been actually fairly solid uh, adherence to wearing masks. Uh, but I don't think uh, they will be taking the vaccine in mass. I, I just don't see that happening. Um, we've talked about this a little. And I remember you're saying just like especially with these ultra orthodox people and, you know, they could be Jewish or just ultra religious people that we have in the United States. It doesn't matter where they come from. Oftentimes they they just they've never had any sort of like secular education and they only listen to their rabbi or their priest. And if the rabbi or priest says it's OK to gather, <clears throat> excuse me, 
if the rabbi and priests say it's okay to gather, they're just pretty much going to listen to what they have to say. If they say, don't get vaccinated, they're not going to get vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely something that is here in Israel as well as in the U.S. Uh, a lot of these religious communities will do what their religious leaders say rather than political leaders. Um, it's, it's just a reality. Um, and so you get some acting some ways and some acting other ways, but they act in blocks. They don't act for the most part as individuals. Uh, so that's, that's really the way it works in those communities. There was a video that came out a couple of weeks ago or maybe earlier this week of a wedding somewhere in New York. And it was an ultra orthodox wedding. And it looked like a high school basketball game, the way the stands were kind of set up and people were jumping around. It was kind of crazy to see that in today's day and age amidst all the social distancing. So a lot of people just don't think of it as a thing that could affect them or yeah, they just listen to a source that's not really based in science. Yeah, 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 for sure. Speaking of that, uh, like that high school basketball look. So actually uh, every week on, I believe Friday night, they have uh, these Haredi um, sects or Hasidic sects. They have uh, they have this thing called a tish, where all of the men come into like a room, which could be like the equivalent of a high school ba- high school basketball gym, and you have like the stand set up. So you have these Haredi guys just like packed into the stands, and they instead of a basketball court on the ground, it's going to be a long table with your head rabbi, and then a bunch of like junior and associate rabbis on the table. And the, the head rabbi is going to be uh, making blessings and, and eating and drinking and everyone's just going nuts for him. So I, apparently it's a nice thing to go to. I, I might have to try it out one day, but I haven't been to one yet. Post, post COVID, though. Yeah, absolutely post COVID. And I, I don't know how much long after COVID, because like I said, I don't know if they will be getting vaccinated. But uh, it, it's definitely I've heard it's, um, it's a cultural event that it could be interesting to see. So I'm, I'm definitely not close minded to going to one of those, but it's pretty funny to watch. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I've known you for a very long time. I think we met in sixth grade and then started to become really good friends in high school and we went to college together and you've always had an interest for like geopolitical international politics. Um, and you've always been able to name, you know, this te- this random terrorist who's hiding out in Pakistan, this, this one in the mountains of Afghanistan, like you're extremely knowledgeable when it comes to that. Um, so I'm assuming that, you know, studying counterterrorism and intelligence and homeland security has always been a dream of yours. So could you say right now that like you're fulfilling your dream? Wow, that's a loaded question. That's a really good question. Um, I would definitely say it's something I've always been very, very interested in and, and something that has uh, really uh, um, caught, caught my imagination a lot of times. So I would definitely say I'm enjoying a lot what I'm studying a lot. And uh, whether it's a, it was like a specific dream of mine to work uh, in the industry, uh, I, would, I would say partially, yeah, partially it was. So I would definitely say that um, I'm at least partially living that dream. Uh, we'll see where it ends up in terms of uh, employment, because like I said, I'm, I'm still finishing up the program and looking for that right spot to uh, get into next. Uh, but I, I would definitely say that the content that I learned was 
incredibly interesting stuff. It always kept me engaged and it definitely uh, pushed me, uh, pushed the limits of my mind. So like it, it was, it was very fun to learn about. It's also like a lot of people, they're interested in this stuff. Uh, they're interested in like intelligence and, and thrillers and spy dramas and everything like that. And they read about it in the news, but to, to study it is taking it, I guess, to the next uh, level and to learn theories about it and everything like that. So I, I definitely think that uh, it's a super, super interesting thing to study. Um, and if anyone out there is listening and they and they are not happy with their job, but they, they've been interested in geopolitics or, or anything like this, I, I would highly recommend just uh, just going after it because uh, at a certain point, you're not going to want to go back to school. So um, I, I've had a great experience. That's all I'll say about it. And I also think like a, a misconception of a lot of people is, between a lot of people is like, oh, like, you know, Jewish people go live in Israel. But if you're interested in this kind of stuff, you could go and do the program and you do not have to be Jewish to go live there and do it. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, a few of my friends in my program, um, they were not Jewish. And then there's a few others that were a part of a U.S. military program where after graduating from West Point or uh, Norwich University specifically, they came here and uh, they studied on it. They were not Jewish. Most of them were not Jewish as well. Uh, it's just, I, I would say, I would try to be unbiased about this, and I think many people would agree with me that Israel is one of the top places in the world to learn about this, uh, regardless of uh, where your allegiances may lie or, or where you're, you're in favor of one side or the other. Um, to learn about uh, about counterterrorism and homeland security measures. Um, this is definitely a country that, that has a significant amount of experience in, in both of those. And uh, it, it's a very valuable place to learn about if it's something you're interested in. What is your thesis paper on, if you don't mind giving us a sneak preview? Yeah, yeah. So my, uh, my like, final paper or thesis, it's not, like, quite a thesis-level paper, but... Um, it's a pretty significant final paper. Uh, it's on uh, terrorism financing. So I wanted to uh, leverage my background in finance, international business. Shout out Kelly School of Business. Uh, and I wanted to, uh, <laughs> I wanted to uh, leverage that background into what I was studying now. Uh, and so basically I walked through the, the history of fundraising for uh, two terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah. And then the last part of my paper is looking towards the future. Uh, and digital currencies, social media campaigns, and how uh, these terrorist organizations are going to utilize the internet, and sp specifically anonymous ways to use the internet to uh, fundraise their operations, whether it be through, obviously, uh, people know cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, or even more obscure ones, or through the dark web, credit card fraud, uh, other ways people do it. So, uh, not people, terrorist organizations and criminals. <laughs> so, uh, that, that's what my paper's on. Um, I'll be finishing it up soon, and yeah, I'm excited for the next chapter. Very excited. So, um, obviously, one appealing thing for criminals using cryptocurrencies is that there's no central bank and there's really no way to track it. So, what from what you've studied, what measures are being made to like you know counter the use of cryptocurrencies or be able to like create some sort of tracking mechanism to see where these terrorist organizations are getting their fundraising so they could track it to the source. Yeah. So as a disclaimer to start off, I would say by no means am I an expert on this as I have only researched it. I haven't actually like worked uh, in the field. Although From your I research. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
although I have uh, talked with a few, few different uh, companies about ways in which they do this, but there are there are um, ways uh, there are there are internet programs to basically de-anonymize uh, many cryptocurrency transactions, but you you can't really just say like cryptocurrencies because there's so many different cryptocurrencies. There's so yeah. many different uh, virtual currencies. So like Bitcoin, in many respects, Bitcoin isn't very anonymous anymore because technology has developed to the to this to the fact where you can um, de-anonymize the the ledger. But there are other cryptocurrencies that um, are more anonymous. So like back in July, I believe it was of this year. Uh, the Islamic State said they're no longer taking donations in Bitcoin, but they'll take donations in Monero, which is another cryptocurrency. So, um, yeah, it's it's going to continue to evolve. I have a question about terrorist organizations using Bitcoin. Did they make a ton of money off of that? Just because if you're a criminal organization and you're kind of probably on the forefront of anonymous currencies and you buy a bunch of Bitcoins back in 2000. 15 or something like that are they just wildly rich now because of that yeah so that's a really good question and actually i would say no because most of the evidence that that has been researched right now shows that terrorist organizations which i should say are different than criminal organizations that's a, a pretty important distinction to make but terrorist organizations they didn't really like mine bitcoin or like like have bitcoin to hold as an investment or that's not really the way that they like thought about it. The main reason why they were doing it, from my perspective, I think, is because they believed it was anonymous and a way to move money across borders, which got shut down pretty much post 9-11 when uh, government agencies started to shut down on the traditional banking sector as well as the Hawala uh, informal banking sector. Um, but uh, I would say that uh, there's only anecdotal evidence right now of terrorist organizations uh, using uh, virtual currencies to raise funds. So there have been like social media campaigns have been seen and then you can track like the uh, address that they put on the social media campaign and how much they've raised. And it really isn't as much money as you would expect. So obviously like people would think that if they were like very smart about it, they would like mine Bitcoin or they would have invested in, in getting Bitcoin early on and then held. But uh, I don't think there's very much evidence of that. The other thing is, when I say anecdotal evidence, I would say only anecdotal evidence has been found. It's possible that research hasn't evolved to the point where they've been able to find more money that has been raised by these terrorist organizations through virtual currencies. That's something I say in my paper. So I say that all the research so far says that it's only anecdotal. But what if the, the rest of the evidence hasn't been found yet? It's possible that it's still out there. So um, it's important to note that as well. Um, so, um, recently in the news, uh, the top Iranian nuclear scientist was killed. Um, and just as someone who's familiar with the region, um, would you mind just explaining to some of the viewers, like who he was and, and what the significant was significance of it was? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh, regardless of, your political position or your idea on foreign policy. Uh, many people know just from reading the news that the Trump administration has taken a very hard line on the Iranian regime. And so the Iranian regime has taken a lot of um, pretty significant hits uh, so far this year. 
uh, starting with the uh, elimination of Qasem Soleimani and then the unexplained still fire at the Natanz uh, uranium enrichment facility, uh, and then the, um, the elimination of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, who, by the way, was a brigadier general in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. So when journalists say he was a nuclear scientist or they try to say that the Iranian government tries to say he was working on the COVID vaccine in Iran, uh, I think it's important to just understand truly who he was. Um, uh, he was a very high-level person in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is recognized as a foreign terrorist organization by the United States government. Uh, and he was walking around with a significant amount of bodyguards for a significant period of time. If he was just a civilian scientist, it doesn't really make sense to me that he would be doing that. Um, Although the Iranians would say that the reason why that is is because between 2010 and 2013, a few of their other nuclear scientists in mysterious circumstances were also eliminated. So that's what they would say there. Um, I would say the significance of this is, um, I would also say that there is, from pretty much most indications, from what I've read at least, there's a fair amount of evidence that he was working on a military nuclear weapons project. I mean, um, Back in January 2018, uh, there was a trove of documents that was discovered in a warehouse outside of Tehran uh, and, and given to the Prime Minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, and uh, he, he gave a presentation on it. And in that presentation, he said, uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, I remember that name. Um, and so th this has been uh, something that has probably been a long time coming, I would say. Um, whether or not the timing of it has to do with politics and the changing of administrations and maybe the Israeli government, I don't know, thinking they have more leeway in this one or another one. I, I don't know anything about that. But um, I do know that I, I, I at least believe, like you can never know anything for sure, but I believe that this is going to be a significant hit to the Iranian nuclear weapons program, which um, uh, it, it was very clearly it's a military program. As well as the fact that there were some reports in the media that the Israeli government has obtained recordings of Fakhrizadeh uh, talking about fitting nuclear weapons onto ballistic missile warheads. Um, and if they have those recordings, who knows if they'll be released. But um, it, it's in general, I would say it's going to be a very big hit. Um, I know that the Iranians were very upset at the way that specific, specifically European countries although they denounced it, did not come out any more strongly than denouncements in, in after the attack. Um, but in general, I think uh, it, it makes the region a safer place. I, that's what I honestly believe. And uh, obviously there's room for disagreement there, but um, that, that, that's the fact of the matter in my opinion. So you touched a little bit upon Bibi Netanyahu. So the past year or so in Israeli politics has also been a pretty – interesting time. Um, there's been some unsuccessful attempts to create coalition governments, uh, kind of coupled with some charges of bribery and whatnot. What's the political uh, environment been like to live through over the past year? Yeah, so it definitely, there definitely has been some domestic political turmoil in Israel for sure. Um, we can't relate to that over <laughs> here in the States, unfortunately. It's been pretty smooth sailing <laughs> for us. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was, it's actually pretty similar to that. 
Um, but unlike the states, it looks like we're going to be headed, or Israel's going to be headed to uh, their fourth election in under two years. Uh, so that may happen in March 2021. Uh, but basically, what it comes down to, I mean, there's so many different levels to like the political factions in Israel and the political alliances and who's loyal to who and everything like that. Um, the biggest thing is that I, I think, I, from what I understand, um, like a lot of Israelis um, from the center and the right for sure, and then maybe even the center left, believe that Bibi has been, has been very good for Israel over his 11-year tenure, his second tenure, of course. Um, and he has really advanced the country in, in many ways, economically, security-wise, strategically. Um, many of the things that are happening with these peace deals, he wrote about in his 1996 book, uh, A Place Among the Nations. In many ways, he's an extraordinary figure. But on the other hand, this and this is especially for center-left, center, and some right-wing voters, he has these uh, um, criminal cases hanging over his head. Uh, and they, they've been hanging over his head for a significant period of time. Uh, he has created a political alliance with the Haredim, who many left-wing voters, as well as centrists and even some right-wing, uh, think are just a drain on the economy. And the economy could even be better than it currently is uh, if he would do more to integrate them into uh, a modern society. Uh, and he has a lot of issues with that. But the thing is, and I, and I was reading an article on this earlier this morning, the, the, the voters loyal to Bibi is such a high floor that it's going to be really hard to, to end up getting him out of office because there's so many different parties here. And what happens is the biggest party is going to be the first one that has the ability to build the coalition. And it's, it's probably going to be Likud, Bibi's party. So a lot of people are mad that we're going to another election because they don't think anything is going to change. Um, like uh, unfortunately, because the country really needs a functioning government, because there is there hasn't been a state budget in like two years here. They didn't even have a 2020 budget. It's been on like the budget from 2019 for two years. They're supposed to have a 2021 budget. We're already in December. They don't even know what's going to go on there. Uh, there's a lot of issues with that, but we'll see what happens in the elections. It looks like there's going to be a party from BB's right wing actually. It's going to be the second biggest, and they're going to challenge him. Um, there are some indications it's possible to make a centrist part, centrist center-right uh, coalition without the Haredim and without Bibi's party. I don't know if that'll end up happening. There's so many rumors about different people getting into politics, whether it be like the Tel Aviv mayor, who's very, very popular in Tel Aviv, but probably won't be much popular outside Tel Aviv, or uh, former IDF chief of staff, Gadi Eisenkot, he's probably going to run. Uh, no, one, no one really knows what's going to happen. It's really day-to-day -day out here, but... Uh, for now, BB is still prime minister, so that's what it is. Um, so I know we talked about Haredi for a little, and like for those that don't know, and we said that they're like the ultra orthodox. Um, and from my understanding, at least from what we've talked, is you know there's mandatory military service if you live in Israel once you turn 18, whether you're a guy or a girl, and they don't serve in the military and they don't pay taxes, and also. Um, a lot of these families have lots of kids. And I think I saw that the average family has about six kids. So when you have all these people that are going to vote right wing, but they're not really contributing to society in the sense that they're not paying taxes and they're not serving in the military like everyone else, I'm sure it bothers a lot of people, doesn't it? 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. It does bother a lot of people. But I want to make one distinction there. The Haredim are not right-wing in what you would think of as like the typical American conservative, although they are obviously very socially conservative. Uh, the Haredim will align themselves with whatever faction will, will allow them to sit in the government. And they're very, very smart about placing themselves in specific ministries where they then will have a say in that ministry in terms of funding their, whether it be yeshivot, which are schools, or um, their girls' schools as well, um, or any other uh, 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 community funds that they need. And so sometimes they don't even become ministers, but they become deputy ministers, and so they have a say. Uh, but I would say that they aren't really uh, right-wing in that sense because just uh, a, a few governments ago, if I'm not mistaken, they were aligned with what is known as a center-left party. So, um, and also when it comes to economically speaking, they are most definitely far more socialist than any right-wing party you would traditionally think of in the United States in terms of government funding, obviously, because that's how they receive their funding. So the political spectrum in Israel is also very different from it is in the United States. So I think we need to be, uh, we need to make a little bit of a distinction there. But right now they are most certainly aligned with the right wing. The other thing about the Haredim is a lot of the Haredim, they don't really, um, th their main ideology is about like the land of Israel and waiting for the Messiah to come to redeem the land of Israel. And so the state of Israel is less important to them. They'll use the state of Israel for their own benefit um, when they need to, when they need funding and everything. But when it comes to, for instance, um, what you think of as right wing in Israel is people that don't want to give up any more land for peace because what they believe is it hasn't worked in the past and it's not going to work in the future. And what um, Israel's neighbors understand is strength, not weakness. And so that's why they believe that. And the Haredim, actually, some of the um, highest levels of the Haredi parties have never really come out saying that we wouldn't give away land for peace. They, some of them actually said that if it guarantees peace, we would give away land again. Because like I said, they're waiting for something that's more metaphysical, as in like the Messiah coming, rather than uh, a, uh, a political settlement or anything like that. So I would say that in many ways, the Haredim are not really um, right-wing in that sense. But like I said before, socially, they're, they're very religious, very, very religious, strict interpretation of Torah law, for instance. They're very, very right-wing in that sense. But in the rest of the uh, traditional Israeli or like revisionist Zionism, which is like Zev Jabotinsky, that's far more Likud or Naftali Bennett and Yamina than you would see in the Haredi parties. So it's kind of like a... It's kind of a mixture. It's, it's very interesting uh, to read about, but it's it's something that you kind of have to like detach yourself from the political scene in America and rethink what you think politics are to truly understand here. I think the thing that gets lost in American politics a lot of the time is that we also kind of maintain coalitions within government, but it's just manifested differently. So the religious right and the social right and the concert, or I guess fiscal right have all kind of allied together. But yeah. it could easily be the other way around had other events gone differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and th that's that's what I would say. I mean, it's just like if you had all of these factions come together in two big blocks, that's what it is in the U.S. It's two big blocks. And obviously there's always the, the questions of would the U.S. be in better shape if they had uh, more of like a parliamentary system like we have here or in the U.K.? Um, it depends. It depends what you think. My personal opinion on that is that when you have these big tents, it leads to moderation because you have to win the most votes. And so 
you don't go too far to the right, too far to the left. Obviously, that has exceptions. And, uh, depending on people's opinions, you can see these exceptions throughout U.S. history. Um, but for a lot of U.S. history, it's been kind of pretty centrist. And now maybe the pendulum will start to swing farther one way or the other. But um, so that's what I would say personally, I think is a benefit to it. But then, I, but then, like I said, there's a lot of people that don't believe their voice is being heard because it's such a big tent. Yeah, I've always kind of thought that a coalition government in, the, in a truer sense of different kind of coalitions maintaining voting blocks would be better for the states. But when you hear about the Israel example of a budget not being passed for the last couple of years, it kind of makes you rethink that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like Israel just has so many different factions because you also have the Arab sector, which we haven't even touched on. That's 20% of the population. You have um, you have you have a significant amount of Russian immigrants that are very right wing, but they're fiercely secular. And so, like, they are the most. I would say they're the party that represents them, Israel Beitenu, is the most anti-Haredi out of all of the parties, maybe even including the Arab parties. And there's, they are definitely traditionally a right-wing party on security and everything like that. So it's just, there's so many, com- it's, it's so hard to follow, but it's, it's kind of like Game of Thrones. So it's interesting to follow too. <laughs> All right. Um, so you're a huge sports fan. And, um, yeah, let's talk about sports. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll touch on sports. You're a big Minnesota sports fan. Um, and you... I just from as far as as young as I could remember, like at camp, summer camp growing up, you were the kid that was always walking around with a Sports Illustrated reading. You've con- you consume knowledge. That's what you do. You're a sponge. Uh, you spit out <laughs> facts. Like I think like all us and a lot of our viewers just learned a lot that we didn't know before. Um, but one thing I remember about you was that you uh, you you were able to name very very obscure division one sometimes division two or three um colleges and and the and their name and their uh mascots so if i throw a couple at you do you think you'd be able to get them uh it's i'm I'm definitely a little rusty now absolutely um but yeah let's do it (laughs) all right so what about sacramento state uh they're the hornets that that is correct all right um what about the university of green bay uh wisconsin green bay phoenix um is that wrong i i'm looking it up right now the wisconsin green bay you said phoenix yeah all right how are you going to ask the question but not have the answer well i'm (laughs) looking it up as i go and uh Yep, they they are the Phoenix. I probably would have never guessed that. What about Alabama A&M? Alabama A&M Bulldogs, right? Um, pulling it up right now. <laughs> okay. I do not have the answer, Sam. <laughs> I, didn't ask, I just pulled Alabama A&M answer. out of my out of my ass. I I didn't actually have that one. Uh, it looked, their mascot <laughs> they are the is Bulldogs. Yeah, and Lady mas- do you know what their mascot's name is? Lady Bulldogs too. What? Do you know what their mascot's name is? This is this no, is a no, bonus. I, I, don't, I don't know mascot names. This isn't some like nah. <laughs> it's Butch. It's Butch, but that doesn't count against you. You're still three for three right now. Uh, what about North Carolina A and T? Though they're also the Bulldogs. 
right? <laughs> Aggie the Bulldog. Yup. I think yeah. they're the Aggies, actually. Hold I on. actually, uh, I, uh, Tariq Cohn went there, and also uh, one of my friends when I was interning at 3M. They're the, they're, all right, they're, uh, they're, they're the Aggies, but it's Aggie the Bulldog, so I, I will I will count that. All oh, right. well, yeah, you're right. I should have known. A&T, it's obviously. Honestly, like, I, the fact that you got Bulldog is, is very impressive. Um, technically, they're the Aggies, but I will give that to you. You are awarded a point. Um, <laughs> I got one. Oh, yeah. All right, Harrison Middleton University. Nah, nah, I, I don't know. That's not D1, bro. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I'm, All right, I, I actually googled it, but I made it up. But we're gonna we're gonna stick to, we're gonna stick to we're gonna stick to D1. Um, if we're gonna go D3, we could go Minnesota schools. But I'm gonna throw a little HBCU at you, historically black colleges and universities. Um, yeah. Texas Southern. Ah, Aren't those the Texas Screaming Eagles? Um, I'm sorry. Are you Sam Parker? I'm I'm, I'm coming in and answering that one. I think it, I think they're the Eagles. Um, isn't that Glory Road, Texas Southern? Yeah, it used to be UTEP. No, 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 no. U UTEP is Glory Road, University of Texas El Paso, which used to be oh. Texas Southern. Texas Southern is a historically black college in Houston, and they're the Tigers. Oh, I would have said Bulldogs, actually. <laughs> when when in doubt, go with Bulldogs. Yeah, when in doubt, always go with Bulldogs. But uh, <laughs> you got me on that one. You definitely got me on that one. It's like Stump the Schwab. <laughs> I miss that show. Yeah, I was talking about it with Cohn last night. Uh, truly a remarkable show for any of the viewers that don't know. It's literally just about this guy who just knows everything about sports. Um and people, they bring it on. His name's Schwab, and they bring like three or four people on, and they compete against him in, in uh, sports trivia. And very rarely did he ever get stumped. He pretty much beat everyone they put in front of him. It's truly remarkable. Would you yeah, say that great, you? I remember I watched it on ESPN Classic. Uh, is ESPN Classic even around anymore? Only on the premium cable packages. <laughs> yeah, would I, you say that you I have, have a. Would you say that you have an identic memory? <laughs> um, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I do drink a lot of pomegranate juice. That's a, that's a tip <laughs> for all of you up there. Does pomegranate <laughs> juice help with your memory? Yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, you can look it up. You can fact check me on that one, but I don't even think the scientists really know. So <laughs> Apparently, they haven't been drinking enough pomegranate juice if they don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. It's pretty tasty. Good pomegranate on Israel too. We're a non-dairy podcast, and we're now a pro pomegranate pop. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Um. So one thing I did want to touch on was, and and just because I I think it's a very interesting story because not I don't know that many people that have gone through it, but you got placed on jury duty once, and uh, you had a very interesting case. Uh, you're the defendant wore a very questionable uh outfit to court um and i just would love for some of the viewers to hear about hear about this case and what the case was and, and the verdict you guys handed down yeah okay yeah so i got uh i got called into jury duty um hennepin county which is where minneapolis is in uh in minnesota 
And uh, it was a case of, of uh, I believe, second-degree felony assault charge. Uh, it's a little hazy now because it was a while ago now. But um, what happened was it was at bar close, um, and they uh, – Wasn't the people, bar right around the corner from your apartment too? Yeah, yeah. So back when I lived in Minnesota, the bar was literally, literally a, less than a two-minute walk from where I lived. Um, and so, yeah, people were leaving the bar, and uh, there's kind of like a, a main plaza area where people can congregate. And people were congregating there, uh, as, as probably happens quite frequently. Uh, some people had a little too much to drink, and uh, they got into a verbal altercation, which turned physical. And uh, one of the guys ended up uh, knocking out unconscious uh the the uh the plaintiff the guy who uh was pressing the charges um and so uh basically he he was charged with a felony assault and uh we went through the entire process we heard from many witnesses cops that were there the bouncer at the bar uh friends of the guy friends of the other guy uh friends of the guy who threw the punch friends of the guy who who got hit and knocked out. And uh, we went through it, we, we deliberated in the jury room and uh, on, on the decision day, so I would say that the outfit when I first saw it was questionable, but when I realized what it was after further looking at it, it was less questionable. But um, I, I thought that the uh, defendant had walked in in a LeGarrette Blunt jersey uh, which for you, those of you who don't know, he's known for punching a fan. Uh, and uh, it would have been an inopportune time to wear that jersey into a courtroom in, from my perspective. Um, but it turned out it actually was just a Patriots jersey with LeGarrette Blunt's number, but it was customized to his last name. So uh, it, it was not a LeGarrette Blunt jersey. I'll put that on record. But uh, it, was, it was close, very, very close. But he, so, but he did he did go into court wearing a football jersey, not even a button down. Yeah, no, no, he was absolutely wearing a Patriots football jersey with the Garrett Bunce number and his last name on it. Um, and uh, so uh, we deliberated, and it it ends up, and then the process was a lot longer than than I've told the story. It, it took over two weeks, um, or around ten days, I think. But that was with like a break in between, and you like don't go to work. And you're getting paid less than you get paid at work by being at jury duty and whatever. Like it's it's jury duty. Like it depends on the case, but a lot of times it's just it's just not that fun. But my, I guess my case was pretty uh pretty interesting and definitely to be in a courtroom setting. I never obviously my dad uh, actually I shouldn't say obviously, but my dad's a lawyer. I've never actually seen him argue a case live. Um, but I've never really been in a courtroom setting, so it was interesting to be there. Uh, and my dad being a lawyer, I, there was no way I was going to be able to skip out on jury duty. So uh. I was I was happy to uh, to uh, do my civic duty and and do it. Uh, it was an interesting experience, um, and yeah, it was it was quite funny to see what the defendant wore decided to wear that day. Uh, it was less controversial than originally thought, but uh, he ended up not being charged, and so he uh, he walked free. So, but didn't he's doing well out there now? Didn't you didn't you tell me that it came down to dreadlocks versus cornrows? Yeah, yeah. So it came down to, um, so it came down to like what style of hair, like he said he was wearing, and the bouncer saw the guy who the punch was wearing, uh, and we were deliberating between the difference between cornrows and dreadlocks, 
And there, there are people that are saying, obviously, everyone knows the difference between cornrows and dreadlocks. Um, we weren't going to – like, it, it just they, – they, the prosecution just clearly did not do enough to say this guy for sure did it. And it has to be, like, um, beyond a reasonable doubt. And it, it just wasn't. And uh, it, it, there just wasn't enough there. So, like, the prosecutor – I don't know who the prosecutor was, but it, from my opinion, they just did not argue the case as well as the defense. And so uh, that's what you get. But um, I, we ended up saying that he, that he wasn't the guy that did it, and he got it off. Did you get the impression that the customized Patriots jersey was made before or after the charges were brought against the defendant? <laughs> That's a good question. I actually thought, like, did this guy just have this, like, just made for decision day? Like, <laughs> is this like, <laughs> I also might have been the only one in that entire courtroom who knew what LeGarrette Blount was. So I'm not even going to assume that the other people did. Did you, but, did you uh, mention it at all during deliberation with the other jurors that you were just like, hey, guys, like, he is wearing the number of a player that punched a dude in the face and then went after a fan <laughs> when he was in college? And I think, uh, I think on the last day, I think on the last day, I don't know if I remember this correctly, but we didn't see him before he was called into the room to hear the decision. So I didn't see, like, we didn't know what he was wearing that day until he walks into the room. We had already made the decision, passed it on to, uh, I think you pass it on to like the bailiff or like the cop in the courtroom and he hands it to the judge um, because you obviously can't have anyone messing with the decision. So he hands it to the judge, and then we, we, I saw what he was wearing. But I, from what I remember, we didn't see him before, so I don't think I even would have had the opportunity to bring up what he was wearing. If you make a verdict about like a stabbing case, let's say, and then the defendant walks in wearing an O.J. Simpson jersey, are you allowed to retract the verdict? <laughs> Is that allowed? There, there are so many different – like. Like after this happened, I was like, "Wow, I like what has happened in other courtroom settings, like in these criminal case, like these are like criminal cases, like these these are very important." And if he walks in wearing something like, uh, "What's a? Uh, have you guys seen that barstool sports video of the guy chugging those uh, beers, including the orange that's in the blue moon, and he's wearing like uh, what's what he's wearing in like an OJ shirt or something?" I have seen the video. I didn't remember. I have, I've seen a lot of Barstool, but I'm not entirely sure what you're talking about. I don't know. That'd be a funny shirt if he walked in and it was a stabbing case. He was wearing that OJ shirt. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was an interesting experience. I, I mean, like, it's not very fun, but if it's your civic duty. So uh, I would recommend doing it if, if you guys get called. I'd probably just show up wearing an outrageous outfit. Maybe get a mullet. Or dress up as Darth Vader or something just to try to get out of it. They would just take one look at me and say, "Yeah, that. yeah." Because yeah, before you, before you uh, you go, you even know what your case is. There's like a jury selection, and they ask you questions and everything like that. And I remember like saying like, "My dad's a lawyer." So then I think that like because like my dad's a lawyer, so I like know a little bit of at least about the law system, maybe a little bit more than the average person. Uh, the either the process execution of the defense is like I want that guy on my side so I'm going to choose him because I think what happens is it's like a draft where like they each pick one and then they like agree on like which one is like which ones they can take yeah I think throw out certain jurors 
If yeah. the yeah. defense selects one, you can say no if you're the prosecutor. They also yeah. they also probably assumed with your slightly more knowledge of law than the average person that you could be impartial. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it's clearly another clearly another thing they may have assumed. Yeah. I uh I got called for jury duty once I went and uh I didn't get called in the morning, so I was just like watching some Netflix on my computer. I went to lunch, got some Chick-fil-A, I went back, then they called me and they said your excuse for the day and they handed me a seventeen dollar check and it was about a waste of five hours and that, that was my day. What did you use the seventeen dollars <laughs> on? Uh, so I had to give it back to my employer because I correct me if I'm wrong. If when you take you, when you, when you have to go on jury duty, they have to give you paid, paid time off, right? Your employer. I, I think, think so. on the employer. Uh, but I, I don't think they could not give you paid time off because you have to go serve on jury duty. What I, I gave it, my employer told me to give it back to me, so give it back to them. So I did, and then I think I got a PTO day out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't need the seventeen dollars in case you were wondering. <laughs> you could have put it into Bitcoin. I could have put it into Bitcoin, and then and then donated it to the Islamic State through whatever anonymous site. <laughs> That's Don't say that too loudly. You're, you're, you have connection to the Israeli government right now. Uh, I know. Just kidding. <laughs> Next thing I know, they're going to send a hit squad to my door because I said that. No, I think you'll be fine. I think I'll be okay, too. Well, are there any other uh, topics you wanted to cover, Ari? Um, I mean, I thought what you did a really good... What are about the NFL playoffs? Like, I want to talk a little bit more about sports. We can, we can, yeah. put some meat on the bone there. We can keep going. The Bears are dead to me. They're playing right now, and I'm just, I just don't want to watch. Like, I just, I've, I've had enough. I really have. Um, your Vikings are starting to heat up and play a lot better. Um, yeah, the Raiders wet hard. the bed last weekend. Like, actually, like, just like totally wet the bed in all senses. That's, I mean, that's what the Bears have been doing for six weeks. So, I, I, I don't have much to say, but I mean. Who do, who do we like going into the into the playoffs and a little college football as well? I mean, the Hoosiers have massive win yesterday versus Wisconsin. Very happy about that. Let's go Hoosier football. So in the NFL, I like the Steelers and Kansas City. I think I think they're pretty good. That is, those are not bold picks, but uh, <laughs> good for you on that. Good for you. I think they're going to make the playoffs. But do you actually think the Steelers are pretty good? No, I think they're, I think they're like frauds. A terrible schedule. No, I think they've had a horrible schedule. They've lucked out numerous times. They've won very close games against poor teams, and I think they'll get exposed in the playoffs. Yeah, I, I was going to say the Steelers are very good, and objectively, based on their record, they are the best team in the NFL. But it is concerning that they haven't lost yet. I don't think – What do you? how much do you need to win? If they finish first and – in the AFC and then go to the Super Bowl, they have to go 18 and 0, or win the Super Bowl, they have to go 18 and 0. And I just don't, right? Is it 18 and 0 or 19 and 0? I think 18. But if they, if they have a first round buy, it would be conference, uh, or no, it would be divisional conference Super Bowl. So it would be three. I don't, yeah, I don't see them, I don't see them going undefeated. Um, I think their benefit, I think it'd be, Probably beneficial if they lose before the end of the season, uh, before the playoffs, just to kind of get it out. But uh, 
I like the Chiefs a lot. I still think they're they're the they're the team to beat. The NFC is pretty much totally open. I I don't know who's going to come out of that. I think the Packers have a good shot just because of you know Rodgers is just an, on another level and they when they get going they're they're very very tough to beat. Yeah, I don't think any as much as I hate to say that 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 is kind of the case. If we're going conference by conference, the NFC, I don't think the NFC West is actually as strong as they seemed initially. The Seahawks are the worst eight and three team right now, I would say, aside from maybe uh, the Browns. Those are two teams I don't really trust. And then NFC East is obviously a dumpster fire. The Browns are up up 10 nothing right now versus Tennessee. And if they win this game, it is a big statement game. I don't think the, I don't think Tennessee is all that great either. I think they just have Derrick Henry. They, uh, Lost to the Colts, who I also don't think are incredible. I think it's going to be either the Saints, probably the Packers, or maybe Tampa Bay. Out of the Tampa, ha- Tampa hasn't been consistent, and the problem I have with Seattle is their defense is so bad. And when it yeah. comes down to the nitty gritty of the playoffs, like I like, yes, they could put up a ton of points, and DK Metcalf's incredible, and Russell Wilson's an amazing quarterback, but defense wins you championships, and they just don't have a very good defense. Yeah. I think Tampa's got a really good defense, though. And I'm not saying that because yeah. of the Tampa Bay. Antoine Winfield Jr., Parker. Antoine Winfield Jr. The, the Saints have one issue, and that is when they play the Vikings in the playoffs, they lose. So if – except for 0-9. But if they run into the Vikings, which is a huge if because the Vikings are now losing 9-0 to the Jaguars at home. Uh, they may have some issues, but I, I mostly agree with your points. The NFC is tough to determine who's going to come out of that. Uh, I do think the Packers are really good. The Saints are really good. I don't fully agree. I think the Seahawks are actually pretty good. I think the Colts are a terrible seven and four team. They're just not good. Um, I think that that was a, just going to the AFC club. But uh, I still, I still I, think I, overall the Chiefs are the team to beat. For sure, that that's I think that is for sure true. The Chiefs yeah. are so much better than the Steelers in my opinion. Sorry, Indy, if you're listening to this, but it's just it's factual. And the facts just simply do not care about your feelings. <laughs> there um, you go, Ari. <laughs> hey, I just want to pivot to basketball for a little. Um, you guys just had the number one pick. Um, you took Anthony Edwards. Um, how, how are you feeling about that? You're For those that don't know, Sam is a Minnesota Timberwolves fan. Um, yeah, yeah, big Timberwolves fan. Is it Andrew Wiggins 2.0? <laughs> I hope he's not Anthony Bennett 2.0. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know how to feel yet. I think I'm going to have to see him play before fully making a decision. I, I think it was a pretty weak draft in general. I'm never too really high on the Timberwolves franchise, although I do love them. I think Gerson Rosas is making some of the right moves. We're going to have a lot of talent on our team this year. I know some people that are super high on them. Uh, I'm not very high. I think we'll, we may make the playoffs as a seven or eight seed at best. I know some people think we can get up to four, and I just think there's no way in the West. But no. I, think that, I think that the best performance for the, for the club can be seven or eight seed, um, and that's the ceiling. Uh, I think Rubio coming back, like Rubio is just not like a star in the league at all, but I think he'll 
provide a veteran presence that needs to be there. I don't think Carl Anthony Towns is like a, a born leader. I think Rubio can provide more of that. Um, I, like the t- they're just like they're still just too far away. If they still had Jimmy Butler, it'd be a different story. Obviously, you saw what Jimmy D- Butler did with the Heat. It's incredible. I, it's so sad that we lost Butler so quickly. A lot of people really don't like Butler in Minnesota, but uh, I still really like him a lot. He's just a grinder, and that, that's what you need. Like you can't you can't have people that have their feelings hurt so easily. This is a business. This is a profession. You like you have to go at it. And he is just he's a predator. He's not prey. So I have a I have a couple comments based on what you just said, Sparker. First and foremost, those people who think that Minnesota is going to be a four seed are smoking Uncle Bud's hemp and CBD oils because that is <laughs> in no way, shape, or form going to materialize. And B, I want to talk a little about Anthony Edwards. There's been a lot of questions about how dedicated he is to basketball. He raps like little baby, and he actually is a good rapper from what little I've heard. But it seems like he doesn't care about basketball that much, so I definitely think he could be a bust. And then C, former Warrior D'Angelo Russell, current Minnesota Timberwolf, said of Ricky Rubio that he was excited to play with somebody like Ricky Rubio because he's never played with as talented of a point guard as him. And I just want to mention that Stephen Curry and D'Angelo Russell played together. So I, I think <laughs> not Russell really like Steph Curry got hurt like four games into the season. Okay, but they they played together. And for D'Angelo Russell to say that Ricky Rubio is better than Steph is hilarious. Um, yeah, but- that's obviously a joke. I, I think that D'Angelo Russell, which is actually kind of surprising, he actually likes Minnesota a lot uh, from pretty much – like he hypes it more than the normal basketball player would hype their like city, especially like Minneapolis. You don't really get like players coming and like posting about how much they like love the Twin Cities. And like D'Angelo, I'm pretty sure has done that multiple times on his Twitter. Um, so I think he's just like super excited that Rubio's coming back to where Rubio feels most at home. It's obviously a joke if he thinks Rubio's even close to. It's, it's not even like I mean you can laugh at it because it's so so funny, but. Uh, he's not even close to Stephen Curry. I'm, I want to see how the Warriors are going to be this year, actually. It'll be interesting. What do you think? Um, I think they'll probably be in the five to six range, probably, depending on how healthy they're able to stay. Um, if Steph stays healthy, they're they're in it. If he doesn't, yeah. they're, they're not. That's just easy. They've uh, got some decent acquisitions in Brad Wanamaker and Kelly Oubre, which I both think Phil – holes so i think we'll be significantly better than we were last year which is to say the worst team in the league um but yeah it all predicates on on how healthy stuff's able to stay and honestly also how um far along wiseman is in his overall maturation as a player because he only played three games in college you could look at that as something that is immaterial or you could look at him as a high school player um who doesn't have a lot of experience so i think he's a big question mark Excited to see Wiggins and Steph get to play together. I think Steph can really elevate a lot of guys, and Wiggins is one of those. Um, and then same thing with Ubre. Ubre is a fantastic transition player, and the Warriors love to push the ball. So I actually think they'll be pretty good. Um, but I, I hate to say this, but I will be rooting very hard against the Timberwolves in every game you guys play this year since we own your first-round pick. So I, I hope you guys <laughs> lose every game. I, I'm sorry. That, um, that's okay. You, you gotta you gotta root for your interests. Um, 
I, I, I'm sorry to hear the news about Clay Thompson. I think the whole NBA is, is, is upset about that. That's just really sad. Yeah. Uh, and the, the other thing is, I was going to ask who the Warriors drafted, James Wiseman. I don't know. Like, the thing is, like, I wasn't really high on anyone in this draft. So, like, maybe he'll turn – like, one of these guys is going to turn out to be really good, yeah. uh, at least one. And uh, I want to ask Ari about Patrick Williams because that was a surprising pick. Uh, I actually was talking to uh, someone, a previous guest of this show, Jake Newlander, and he wanted to know what I thought about uh, being as big of a college basketball fan as I am. I think it actually still is my favorite sport to follow out of all of them. What I thought about Patrick Williams, and I got to say, I, I, I have not watched much of Leonard Hamilton's Florida State University basketball team for a while. So I don't know much about Patrick Williams, but what do you think about it, Ari? So I'm going to I'm gonna run up from, from the Timberwolves' first pick to Golden State and then get to the Bulls' fourth pick. Um, I think Edwards has the most, is the most athletic and raw talent in the draft. It is a little concerning that prior to the draft, he said he like preferred football. And then there was questions about his work ethic, which is kind of bust material. But he is coming into a team that has D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns. So he doesn't need to do all the heavy lifting. He just needs to dedicate himself and buy into what the Ryan Saunders system and, and work on improving his shot and becoming a good player. And I think he has the ability to be good. Um, Minnesota, though, is notorious for passing on guys who end up becoming superstars. So there is that factor in it. Um, I think James Wiseman is an incredible big man, um, and I think he has all the tools to be a great NBA player, and he's coming in playing with Steph. It could really be a deadly pick-and-roll situation, and he's got Draymond there to lift him up on the rebounding end of things. So I think James Wiseman is going to be great. LaMelo Ball is just a, a, a pure basketball player and, and a playmaker, which is something you can't necessarily teach. And like he said, you know, he, he's born for this. He's been playing. He's been playing professional basketball since he was 14 years old when his psycho father pulled him out of high school and put him overseas <laughs> in Lithuania. I don't necessarily agree with doing that, but he put him on the path to be in the NBA and he is in the NBA now. So, um, if he, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's just a pure playmaker and he did play very well in the NBL, which is, you know, I, the European leagues are definitely a little more competitive, but the NBL is no joke. Uh, it is it is a competitive basketball league and he played well. So I do think he's going to be he's going to be good outside of that. Those top three, there wasn't really anyone else that people were like, oh, it's you know, this person is going to be a lock. This person is going to be a star. Um, I really thought the Bulls were going to go with, uh, you know, someone along the lines of Denny Avita, you know, the Israeli product who is a great shooter, but also some huge question marks. You know, he hasn't really, no one's really seen a lot of him. He's from overseas. Um, Isaac Okuro um, or Obi Toppin. I really thought that was kind of the path the Bulls were going to go. Instead, they took Patrick Williams. His only highlights they showed on draft nights are him delivering flowers to people because apparently that's like what he, his mom's a florist or something and he helps deliver flowers, which is a bit concerning. But 19 years old, um, in the Bleacher Report article, they said one of the biggest signs, the Bleacher Report wrote a great article on how to spot a bust and one of it is age. And typically, the older they are coming to a draft, the more likely they are to bust. And Patrick Williams just turned 19 in August. So pretty much his entire rookie season, he, he will be a teenager. 
Um, he's incredibly athletic. He has a great frame, 6'9", 225, um, really long wingspan. I think he's at seven feet. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but there's a lot of potential. What? I thought that sounds right. There, there's a lot of potential in there, and, and I definitely think it was, it was a gamble. Um, apparently, the Pistons were trying to trade up to get him. But the Bulls, the Bulls have players right now. We're waiting to see how good they are. It's a make or break year for Larry Markin. Um, Wendell Carter's in his third year. He's battled a lot of injury, so we'll see if he could come out swinging this year. Um, Zach Levine's been a pretty great scorer. Can he be an all-star this year? And then Kobe White was really starting to heat up last year before the season was canceled. So they, they took a risk on a guy who's really athletic and he's really young. So he could end up being good. I, I like, I really don't know much about him, but I think the upside's there. So I, I hope he ends up being good. But other than that, like, I just like don't have a definitive opinion on him. You got to be able to trust him. Exactly. New front office. I think, I think they could end up being good. Our tour That's a pretty good breakdown. Yeah, that was, that was very detailed, Larry. <laughs> These are things I think about while I, li- while I lie awake at night. Those in your demons that you battle? Yeah. Well, I remember Sam once told me, you said you were like, it was like after a tailgate, you were like, dude, I was lying in bed last night, really drunk. And I just like kept thinking like, does the clock run during an extra point? And it was weaking me out. It does not. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, I would say one thing though, um, just a little Israeli tidbit. I personally think that Danny Avich is going to be a bust in the NBA. I hope it's not true. I think he's going to end up being a bust. He's, he was very good for Maccabi Tel Aviv. I just think that a lot of the times, and this wasn't true for like Luka Doncic, but like so many of the times when these players come over from Europe, they just like are in for a rude awakening. Uh, Doncic is a whole nother animal. Uh, Avija, I think, is also an animal, but he's not on, on Doncic's level by any means. I don't even think really close. Uh, the other thing is that the 47th pick was Jan Madar, who is another uh, Israeli player. He went to the Celtics. He's going to be spending one more year in the Israeli league uh, before he uh, comes over to the NBA. But he's only 19, and I think he could be he could be pretty good. He's apparently a very quick guard. Um, so that would be something to keep uh, an eye on. But yeah, that's a, it was a pretty successful draft for Israeli basketball this year, that's for sure. Speaking of basketball in Israel, when I was in Israel, I had food poisoning. And when I was kind of getting over it... Did you have some dairy? No, I ate a bad hamburger in Jerusalem. I could see it was, it was, it was I could see the red in the meat. It was bad. But anyway, so I was playing basketball a few days later because I got pulled into a game and I was just really nervous. Cause I was like 90% through the food poisoning, but not a hundred percent through the food poisoning. I was out there like backing people down and I was just nervous about what <laughs> might happen, but it, it turned out okay. Yeah. Is Israeli players are pretty good. I've also had some experience playing in Israel. Um, I did like kind of a teen tour um, in 2012 and I stayed with the host family and me and my buddy Joe on our way to the host family, um, He's like, oh, like the, the father picked us up. He's like, my we were 17. He's like, my son's 14. And we're like, oh, we got a kid that's three years younger. We get there. He's six six, plays basketball. He played on one of those junior Maccabi Tel Aviv teams. We went to the court. He was dunking. We played three on three. We held the court for hours. But there's a like basketball is very big there. Um, there's a lot of talent. Um, it's great to see how, you know, how we're 
like worldwide the game has actually become and how much like untapped talent they're finding in Africa, across Europe, and now Israel, Australia. And, um, you know, there's just more and more international players coming up. So it's, it, it's really an exciting time. But in terms of the NBA and drafting, it, there's always that fear that like you could take that a Darko Milicic over a Carmelo Anthony or Dwayne Wade or Chris Bosh. So like, I think teams are still a little skeptical. But going back to what you said about Luka Doncic, when you look back at it, it was kind of like a no-brainer, even though some teams passed on him. Um, Anthony Randolph, who played on the Timberwolves, he had a very, he was on the Warriors as well. Um, I actually met him when he was in high school. He gave me his signed shoe uh, from the Ron Bell Classic <laughs> All-American game. But he, in an article, he played with Luka Doncic in Madrid, and this is when Luka Doncic was 18. And he said when he was playing with them, and this is a guy who played in the NBA, he said by far and away at that time at 18 years old, he was the best player I had ever played with. So, you know. That is high praise. It's high praise. So, you know, there's a lot of talent coming overseas. Yeah. With Luca, I feel like a lot of GMs overthought it because when you look at him on paper, there's no question that he was the best player in that draft. He was an MVP, a champion in the Euro League, a champion in some other league. He was a finals MVP. He had every accolade you could possibly want at such skill. a young age. Yeah, it, and you just watched the shooting. There's, there was no worry about him busting, I think, given all of the accolades and skills that he obviously possessed. I mean, there's a difference between him and a, a Darko or a Denny Avia where you don't really have as much tape on them as you do other guys. With Luca, there was no question. Also, Denny Avita was playing in, like, level or, like, the B League of Maccabi Tel Aviv. And Luka Doncic was on Real Madrid, which is one of the highest – it's, like, the highest level of European basketball. And he was 18 years old, and he was by far and away the best player in that league. Real quick, Manny, uh, the Raiders are down 13-7 to to the Jets. Um, we, will be, we will be watching that during the witching hour. Um. I think if the Raiders lose to the Jets, I'm just going to give up sports for a while to take a little <laughs> cleanse, maybe delete social media, <laughs> go, go oh live in a God. desert in a tent. Crowder has two touchdowns today, and I benched him in favor of Melvin Gordon. Who has two touchdowns? Jamison Crowder. That's so – dude, oh, I, I, I mean, that is kind of my fault because you did text me this morning at about 8 a.m. and you said Jamison Crowder or Melvin Gordon. I said, I don't know. No, you can't trust Jets players. So I yeah, take yeah. partial responsibility for that. <laughs> well, I think we can, before we divulge into fantasy, we could probably cut this off. Um, Sparker, we thank you so much for, for hours yeah. here. We can literally yeah. talk for hours. We're, we were we we spanned across the globe today. We got Sam in Israel, who is eight hours ahead. So it's currently. 856 there right now and we got sam who's in california for the next month uh and it's currently 10 56 a.m and i'm here in chicago it's 12 57 now so it's we've spanned across the globe today i thought we had an excellent conversation thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh friend of the program yeah and thank you expert. Th- thank you so much for having me on i uh, really appreciate it really really do it was nice uh, 
to get to talk to you guys and be on the show. And I, I obviously wish you the best of luck with this show. And uh, hopefully, uh, once you go through the rotation, I'll be able to come on for a second time. I know JRE, Joe Rogan, he has people on multiple times. So hopefully, I'm one of those guys you want back on the show. Friend of the program, future recurring guest, without a doubt. Thank you, boys. Thank you, boys. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sparker. All right, Sam, you have a, you have a wonderful day. You as well. Have a blessed day. Talk soon. Yeah. Bye.